0: We've been going through the psalms and looking in particular at the character of God through the psalms. And this morning, we're looking at um, the goodness of God. And our psalm is Psalm 34. So hear God's word to us from Psalm 34. A psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. And many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones and not one of them will be broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The word of the Lord. Thank you, God. God, you are good as our creator, as our redeemer. As we reflect on this Psalm of David, and we reflect on the meaning of your goodness, help us to grasp that um, through gratitude and through trust of your intervention in our life. We pray that wherever we find ourselves this morning in a place uh, perhaps distant from you or close to you or maybe we're feeling spiritually cold or numb, that you would awaken us to your goodness, that we would taste of it this morning and draw near to you. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. What is it that makes life worth living? What is it that motivates our lives? That causes us to get up every morning and get dressed and put one foot in front of the other and move forward day to day? What is it that propels our lives and draws us along? The answer is... A sense of the good a sense of the good a life worth living is a life guided by a vision of the good a life guided by a vision of the good that is achievable that we can be united to see when we lose sight of the good in our lives or we uh, have lost hope of ever being united with the good that's when despair sets in if you've ever been in a place of despair what almost always happens is that you have been disconnected with the good you have um, either an experience in which the good that you based your life upon turns out to be an illusion that it can't deliver what you thought it would it didn't give or the good that you've based your life upon is something that is hopelessly out of reach that you will never be able to attain and despair sets in a life worth living is a life based upon a vision of the good to which we can be united and psalm 34 is a is a psalm about god as good god as the highest good of our life and david says in the main verse that we'll be reflecting on taste and see that the lord is good and if you read this psalm there's the tone of the psalm is quite positive and you might, if you didn't know anything, assume that David is perhaps at a spiritual high point in his life. Things are going well. or, um, But the note uh, at the beginning of the psalm actually clues us into the context of the psalm, where it says that this was, reminds us of a scene in David's life when he was before the king of the Philistines in Gath and feared for his life and, and acted like an insane man in order to get cast out of the, the king's presence. Uh, it's helpful to remember the, uh, the story of David a little bit in the context of this psalm because it helps us hear this psalm and apply it in a different way than perhaps we might otherwise. Because when David writes this psalm, he's at one of the lowest points of his life. And he will go much, much lower. But if you remember the story of King David, he was secretly anointed to be king of Israel. Uh, by Samuel David was a nobody he was just a little shepherd boy with a heart after God but God through Samuel anointed David to be king and then David you know the story of David and Goliath where he goes out as the shepherd boy and slays the mighty Goliath and overnight he becomes a, a celebrity and a hero in all Israel in which they sing songs about he becomes best friends with the king's sons Jonathan and marries the king's daughter. Everything in David's life seems to be going up and up and up. He is one of the most powerful men in all of Israel that's beloved. But King Saul is erratic, and he feels threatened by David, and he plots to kill him. And David finds about this plot, and he escapes. But the only safe place to escape is actually outside of the boundaries of Israel to to the Philistines, which were the very people that he was waging war against. And David finds himself in all places in Gath. And the city of Gath is the hometown of Goliath. (laughs) And not only that, but David flees to the city of Gath and he has Goliath's sword with him. And he shows up. And the people immediately recognize David and they seize him and they bring him before the king. And so you can imagine, right, certain death. And what David does is he acts insane. He drools, he talks crazy, and the king is so befuddled by this, he's just casts him out of his presence. He's like, do I have need of more crazy people? No. David saves his life by, in a sense, acting insane, but in the, in the act of doing that was a great sort of debasement of himself and his reputation as a mighty warrior. And then from there, what he does is he flees into the wilderness, and he finds himself in a cave, the cave of Adullam. And there, that is most likely where David wrote this psalm. And uh, Samuel, 1 Samuel 22 says that David wasn't alone. It says that when people heard that David had fled and he was at the cave of Adullam, it says that everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became a commander over them. So You can just imagine, you've this cave full of people who are in debt and despair and distress. And David is the, the one who is over them. But as you read this psalm, you realize that David himself, he could have very easily been in a place of despair, right? Everything that he had taken for granted was just all of a sudden taken away from him. And this is just the beginning because David, for 10 years of his life, will be on the run, living in caves and wilderness places with Saul trying to kill him. And it's from this place that David reflects on the goodness of God. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And again, considering how bad everything was going in David's life, it would have been easy for him to be cynical, to think, you know, God is not good but he doesn't do that. And what motivates his life at this point are not God's good gifts, but God himself. He has a clear vision of God himself as the good that sustains him in his life. Taste and see that the Lord is good. What does it even mean to say that God is good? God is good. It seems like such a bland and empty statement, Right? There's so many things in life that we call good, right? Good coffee, good beer, a good meal, a good mechanic, you know, a good man or a good woman or a good job, you know, a good baseball game. What does it actually mean to say that God is good? Are we saying anything at all, really? Are we saying anything special? We are. When we say that God is good, what we're saying is that God is the supreme good. God is the highest good. God is a good of which there is no other good that is higher or greater or more supreme. In saying that God is good, we are seeing that he is original good. He is the source of all that is good. David says, young lions suffer uh, want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The image here of of a young lion... um, you know, the, the image of a young lion is one of self-sufficiency and independence and power and ability to get what you need whenever, right? It's an Im- image of strength, but even the young lion waits and is dependent on something outside of himself. Even the long, young lion needs goods that he cannot provide for himself. The person who understands the goodness of God who practices, as David says, the fear of the Lord, they know they are completely dependent for all of their life on God as a source of good. God is a source of all good things in our lives. Look at your life and take stock of all the good things in your life. God is the source. James tells us every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, every. From above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change every good thing we have in our lives brothers and sisters comes from god he is the source so your spouse your children your grandchildren your job food drink the things you enjoy everything 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 comes from god and that's why it's so important in our life that we understand um, the virtue of gratitude. Gra- you need gratitude in your life in order to grasp the goodness of God. That's, that's how you, you, you grasp the goodness of God in your life, through gratitude. See, without gratitude, you're gonna be, we are, we're oriented towards life in a way in which we, we're, we think we're entitled to everything. We're entitled, that we're owed certain things in life, and when we don't get them, um, or we get them imperfectly, we become bitter and sour. But gratitude, gratitude is this deep sense that all that I am, that all that I have comes from God as gift. That, that's, the, that's the core and the heart of gratitude. That all that I am and all that I have comes from God. It's not owed me, I don't deserve it. I can't demand it as a right. Give it to me, Lord. And when when we have that mentality, all the things that we can just take for granted, we are thankful for. David opens his psalm with gratitude. An exclamation of God's blessing and praise, which is a form of gratitude. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord and let the humble hear and be glad. You have to be humble in order to, be, to, be, to have gratitude, to recognize that all the good in your life comes out from outside of you. Why does David bless the Lord? Because God has poured out his goodness upon him. See, the, the life of praise is a life of gratitude of the creature who has been given life for all things theologian Karl Barth uh, said that for the redeemed creature, gratitude isn't simply an activity or uh, a disposition, but he says, but the very essence of the creature itself. The very essence to be a creature is to be grateful. It is gratitude itself. It can see itself as gratitude because in fact, it can only exist as this, as pure gratitude towards God. We can only exist if we really understand ourselves in relationship to God who created us in a place of pure gratitude to the one who gives life to us. And that's why, um, that's why worship is at the center of the Christian life. That's why the, the entire Psalter is at the middle of the Bible and it's just filled with praise and blessing and adoration of God, which is an expression of gratitude. One of the fundamental ways we express gratitude in our life is we just we live a life of praise. Gratitude is the way that we grasp and relate to God as good. And so when we lack gratitude in our life for all the big and small things that that God has given, um, we don't see God as good. (laughs) We don't. We just, we're blinded. We're blinded to all the, the, the things that God has given us. Friends, are you thankful? Are you thankful for the things that God has given you in your life? Do you see them? You see the good. Now God is the source of all goodness universally because he's the creator. Uh, this isn't a major theme of this psalm, but it's, it's assumed that God as a source of good is, gets back to this idea that God is the creator God, and he created a good creation. If you remember the, the story, uh, the opening of creation in Genesis one, God creates, and what does it say in conclusion before the next day? It was good. This is repeated seven times. And God saw, and it was good. And God saw, and it was good. And God saw, and it was good. He says that about every living thing, every single thing that he creates. And in the very end, as a, to sort of right before the, the, the Sabbath day, God says, and it was very good. And it's helpful to know that uh, the, the, Genesis account was written against the background of many other ancient Near Eastern accounts in which, um, creation was actually a result of violence and conflict. And that even within the created order itself, there was material evil woven in with good things, but the biblical account where God says, it is good it is good it is good. Everything that God created, <laughs> everything is good. Why? Because he is good and he is a source of all goodness. And not only that, part of the way that the goodness of God is manifested in experience and creation is that he created a world full of things that are pleasing. They're pleasing. They're things that we desire. When God puts uh, the, the first man and woman in the garden, it says he planted trees, all kinds of trees with fruit. It says it was pleasing to the sight and good to eat. The Garden of Eden as a place was just filled with sensuous sort of tasty things that your eyes saw and you're like, ah, I want that. And that is our experience of creation itself, even if you're like, we spent some time in in Tennessee on the Hiawassee River upstream tubing, and it's just beautiful. There's so much pleasing that is a part of God's creation. And again, all that is a reflection of God as good. And for David, this is really key. Because he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He wants us to connect in our experience, the experience of pleasure and desire with with the person of God. He wants to move us, say, listen, God is not just an abstract being up there. God is good. You have to taste him. He's pleasing. He's desirable. This is really central to the whole idea of the goodness of God, that the good is something we desire, we want, we strive after The good is pleasing, it brings enjoyment. Now, you can imagine in David's context in the cave of Adullam, uh, surrounded with the down and out and the desperate and despairing, that there would be a lot of qualifications or suspicions or skepticism around the idea that God is good. If God was good, why are we in this cave? If God is good, why am I suffering all this hardship and loss? And in many ways, you can read this psalm, this psalm of David, as a defense of God and his goodness in the midst of a world of evil and hardship and suffering. But David's defense of God is, it's not a theodicy in in the sense of a traditional philosophical argument that argues for the goodness of God in a world of evil. Instead, he makes an argument for the goodness of God based upon spiritual experience. I know you don't believe me based upon the fact of why you're in this cave, but trust me, God is good. Taste and see for yourself that He is good. You have to taste God. Um, as a parent of children, perhaps you've had experience of trying to get children to eat foods that, as they look at it or you contemplate it, in their minds, there's no way that that can taste good. I had this experience recently, just like four days ago, at uh, the Cajun Lady seafood restaurant in Ocoee, Ten- Tennessee, when I ordered um, gator tail. I grew up in Florida eating gator tail, uh, and I, I thought it was delicious. So I ordered some, and I kept, I'm like, guys, try it. It's really good. And they're just disgusted by the idea that you would eat galligator. And I kept saying, no, just try it. It looks like a chicken McNugget, right? I mean, it's good. Now, they didn't try it. Van took like a little nibble. He's like, ah, I don't like it. But there's a a way in which I think this illustrates a very profound truth about what it means to know God, that in a world of suffering and hardship, you can't know the goodness of God simply by looking at the external circumstances of your life from the outside, just by observing the surface details or what you think it might taste like you actually have to taste God. You've got to taste Him to know the experience that He is good. So you're thinking, well, okay, what does it mean to taste God? How do we do that? And here's where I want to jump ahead um, to the New Testament. And uh, one of the quotations of this verse we find in 1 Peter 2. And I think Peter helps us kind of put a context around what it means to apply, what it means to taste that the Lord is good. Peter says this, this is um, 1 Peter 2, 1. Like newborn infants, long crave, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. the question then is, well, okay, what does Peter mean by pure spiritual milk? And how is it related to God as good and tasting that God is good? And here, the pure spiritual milk refers um, really to God, a gracious experience of God. This verse, this Psalm is all about experiencing God's grace. It's his gracious experience in our lives. And in particular, with David's own experiences, God is the one who has protected him and delivered him and intervened time and time again. And and he's saying, taste it, reflect on it. The essence of the command to crave pure spiritual milk is, is connected, what I think David means here about developing our appetites for God. See, to know God is to develop an appetite for God. And Peter and David both know that God is the only proper object of our deepest longing to crave pure spiritual milk is to crave for God himself. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Try God, taste God. The scriptures often describe our relationship with God um, through the imagery of of taste. That taste is a way of knowing the world, right? I mean, young children know this. They wanna put everything in their mouth because they want to know it. And as we grow older, our faculties of perception tend to sort of focus just in sort of a, a mental kind of way. But the Psalms are rich in its language about tasting and, and experiencing God. The feast, the Psalm 36, the feast, they feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. But God has a river of delights from which you can drink. Or Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, the image of the newborn longing for pure spiritual milk shifts the way we think about our relationship with God. It focuses our attention on desire, on longing, which is central to understand what, it, what the good is, right? Because the good in life is what we desire, it's what we want. Whether we articulate the goods in our life or think about them, um, we are drawn along and we desire the good. God is the supreme good, the highest good, the good of which there is nothing higher. Do you desire him as such? Do you long for God in the way that you might long, say, to get married, to have children, to be known. I mean, do you long, I mean, all the good things, to, to find that right job, do you long for him in the same way? Do you crave God the same way that a newborn craves milk? See, again, I, I think that too often our relation with God is defined by the knowledge we possess of God, that to really know God, I, I read a lot of theology books and I, you know, I memorize a lot of scripture verses, and you know, I don't wanna read theology books, that's important. <laughs> But God is not an object, right? God is not an object which you crew information about. God is a subject. You can't know God as an it, as a thing, as an object out there. You can only know God as a vow, as a you, as a person, as a relationship, in relation. Knowing God involves a personal kind of knowing and engagement. And here, I think the imagery of a newborn uh, baby nursing helps us a lot. Because you cannot separate the milk that the mother offers the child from the mother herself, who offers her very body and love to that child, right? What makes a mother's milk so nourishing is not only the nutrients and the calories it gives to sustain the life of the child, but the bond, the bond of love that forms and develops in a primal way between that infant and the mother. The mother is not just a milk dispensary, even though I I know that moms often feel that way. You can't just subtract the milk from the mom and the relationship and reduce it to some substance. The milk is so nourishing because of the relationship it it establishes and nurtures. It establishes a vital relationship of trust and surrender and this is exactly how we have to think about a relationship with God to taste of the goodness of the Lord to know his goodness is to be drawn into a deeper relationship of trust and vulnerability and obedience the fearing of the Lord the surrendering of my life to the Lord